So as those handouts are coming around, you can also turn your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 4 and the black Bibles around you. That can be found on page 809, Matthew chapter 4. As a church from the very beginning, four years ago, I said that we would like to be committed to just teaching through books of the Bible so that way every week when you come to gather with Embassy Church for worship, you would feel confident that we're just going to hear from God today. At least that's the hope. Is Bill's hopefully not going to insert his agenda into the services. Here's the latest book I read. Here's my latest take on what's going on in the news, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Rather, let's just continually and repeatedly discipline ourselves to hear from God. And so we work our way through books of the Bible and alternate between Old and New Testament. And so we just finished a series in Ruth earlier, and then now we're back in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4 is where we find ourselves in that study. Last week we began looking at this passage in uh, verses 18 and following. So that's where we find ourselves, verse 18 down to 25. And if you look at this front side of the sheet with our embassy logo, embassy church, and it says, what is a disciple? This, this front sheet really summarizes what we looked at last week from this passage of Scripture. What is a disciple? And I didn't give this definition explicitly, but here's a good, simple definition. A committed follower of Jesus who is actively learning how to live life to its fullest in the kingdom of heaven. And what we mean by that is the word disciple is not particular to following Jesus. It's a broad word. That's what we looked at last week. A disciple actually comes from people before Jesus were, were called disciples. And so that's why you see these synonyms here are actually the, the sense of what disciple means. Apprentice is, I think, probably one of the best words in the English language that communicates what a disciple has been throughout history. So think of yourself, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, you're an apprentice, a learner, a student, a pupil, someone who adheres to the teaching and the ways of Jesus. And as we looked at last week, that's not just on a few head knowledge type things. It's similar if I wanted to learn a trade, like I want to become a plumber or a doctor or something to that effect. I have to do school to like sit down and study the book so that way I learn certain key ideas and words and terminology. At the same time, my, my hope is not to just learn everything I can about pipes and water and plumbing to never actually go into a house or a building and fix somebody's plumbing issues or, or plumb a new house that's being built. The hope is that you put that into practice, right? And so oftentimes when you're learning in school a trade, you, you start underneath of someone and then they start walking you through the ropes and, and putting those lessons into practice day after day until eventually you graduate and you become your own plumber and then maybe you apprentice other people. You, you all get the idea, I think, when you hear that word apprentice, what I mean. That, that's what disciples of Jesus should be like. Are, are there some things you need to learn from in the Bible where a classroom type setting where one person's teaching and you're listening is very useful? And, and, and not just useful, but necessary. Absolutely. But furthermore, the hope is that the rest of the week, we are living together with one another in such a way where you're walking alongside somebody like they're, they've been doing this following Jesus thing much longer and they've been practicing the ways of Jesus and we're learning from them. 
That's what we're talking about when we say disciple. And, and a lot of that was last week. And you'll see here, we, we overviewed a little bit how disciples are made. First and foremost, you're either following Jesus now with your life. Your life is not just, I'm a Christian. And I, I mentioned last week, 70% of the people, roughly speaking, in surveys will call themselves in America Christians. But when you ask further questions about what it means to be a Christian, to actually follow and implement the teachings of Jesus, further studies will show it's, it's roughly 8 to 10% of people actually are following Jesus in America. So we want to be clear as a church If we're calling ourselves Christians, if we're calling ourselves disciples of Jesus, we don't merely mean that you grew up going to church, that you believe a few certain things that the Bible says, and that you prayed some prayer one day, and that, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven then. That's not Christianity. That's not following Jesus. It is allowing all of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus to influence the way you live your life, and if that's not you, then you're lost. You're wandering around trying to figure out how to live your life without a guide, namely Jesus. And we're encouraging people, don't do that. Follow Jesus. And so that starts with evangelizing lost people. So you're either lost or you have been found by Jesus and saved by Jesus. And then there's establishing people in the basic truths. This would be a lot of the like teaching of like what it means to be identified with Christ and being baptized into the church, and then equipping them to do works of the ministry. We're going to talk about this in a moment, but God gives his spirit so that each of you can serve God wherever you're at in a variety of different ways. And then ultimately, we export to the nations. If you flip your page over, you'll see that last week's message was summarized with this phrase, what do disciples do? Disciples want to, and then this is what I mentioned last week, They want to be with Jesus, and they want to be like Jesus. If you want to really boil it down in very simple terms, I think this is an easy way for us to wrap our minds around it. What does it mean for me to follow Jesus? What was the call to follow Jesus in Matthew 4? It is to be with Jesus, to know him, and have him influence every moment of every day. And that's most prominently right now, influenced by living and walking according to the Spirit. And then secondly, be like Jesus. Do the things that Jesus did. So today what we want to do is answer that question. What were the things that Jesus did? If I want to be with Jesus in a moment-by-moment, everyday kind of manner where I am keeping in step with the Spirit, but I also want that to to push me out into the world to do the very things Jesus did, what, what would that look like? And that's what I hope to answer today. And so on this back sheet, this is kind of your guide for today. And it's two, two, two big ideas. Jesus spoke God's word and Jesus served God's world. Those are our two big category points. And we're going to break them down into a list of ten different things. Uh, but first, let's read this passage and see if you don't see this summary passage in Matthew 4. It's not Phil's idea of summarizing, but the Bible's. The Bible tells us that Jesus spoke God's word and he served God's world. So let's pick it up in verse 18 of Matthew 4 on page 809. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and, they, and their father, and they followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Well, do you see what I'm seeing in this text? To follow Jesus in that first paragraph is, is about being with him and literally walking behind him. These disciples would have done like an ancient uh, or first century rabbi. And, and, and that was mostly what we were thinking through last week. To be like him is to do what he did. And we notice verse 23 and 24 talk about what Jesus did. So if you're following Jesus when he was on the earth, what would you see him doing? And we don't have to guess. It's, it's quite clear. He is proclaiming, he is teaching, and he is announcing the kingdom of God. And then secondly, he is healing people who are sick and hurting and broken. So he is speaking God's word, and he is serving God's world, and he is bringing light into darkness with this new kingdom. So I think if you read this quite plainly, you'll see that the outline for what it means to do what Jesus did is to speak and to serve. Another parallel passage that I think is helpful that captures all of these in a couple verses is in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Listen to these words. Jesus appointed 12 who he called apostles. Why? So that they might be with him. Listen to that again. Jesus appointed 12 apostles. The word apostle means sent one. It's it's actually a boating uh, term. Uh, used for nautical sending out boats and ships to carry messages or freight or different things. So that's, that's the root behind the word apostle, to be sent out, carrying a message or goods. So he, he has these 12 men who he's going to send out because he's going to train them up, an apprentice, they're going to be his apprentices, and he's going to send them out. But first he says that he, he named them and appointed them so that they would be with him. That's Mark chapter 3, verse 14. And then he might send them out to preach, that's speaking, and have authority to cast out demons, that's serving other people who are afflicted with all kinds of suffering and pain and issues in the world. Right there, I think, is a great summary of what we're seeing in Matthew 4 and really throughout the life of Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. He calls you, first and foremost, so you can be with him and know him. Secondly, we're to do what he does, and that's speak and then serve. I want to make sure you see that this is not just a few isolated verses because I'm I'm, I'm saying that this summarizes the ministry of Jesus, this summarizes your calling, this summarizes the mission of our church, to speak and serve. So for example, these two words are often used throughout the New Testament to summarize your duty as a Christian, if you want to call yourself a Christian. In Luke 24, verse 19, after Jesus' whole life is done, how do some guys summarize all of Jesus' life? Well, he was a mighty prophet in deed and in word, speaking and serving. You look at all of Jesus' life at the end of Luke chapter 24, and what do some people conclude? That he's mighty, he's one like the prophets, and it's by his words and his deeds. Take 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 12. Each of you have received a gift. I believe this gift being referred to here is the Holy Spirit. 
So use the gift of the Holy Spirit to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. How am I going to use the gift of the Holy Spirit to serve? Answer, speaking. Whoever speaks, speak with the oracles, the words of God. Whoever serves, serve with the strength that God supplies, so that in order that everything we do would be bringing glory to Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That passage, by the way, the reason I wanted to bring it up is that that passage just came to me a few weeks ago. And I was thinking, this, this, this is it. This, this is for embassy. This is where we have been, and this is where I want us to go. What, it, what is our mission as a church? That's on the banners, that's on this little handout here. What's it say? Embassy Church. We exist to do what? To glorify Jesus Christ. This passage tells you how that happens. We glorify Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 4, it says, by speaking the words of God, so speak true things, and secondly, serving with the strength God supplies through the Holy Spirit gift that he's giving you. So that when you speak, you're speaking in a way that brings glory to Jesus. When you serve, you're serving not with like, well, look at me. You're serving in a humble, broken, dependent, I'm a sinner, I don't deserve any credit, all glory be to Jesus Christ. Doesn't that nicely summarize what we've been talking about for four years? If you've not been with us for four years, this should hopefully nicely summarize where we want to go for the next 40 years, Lord willing, and beyond. Or until Jesus comes back, which we believe we hopefully will. A wonderful illustrative picture of this, this gift of the Spirit that comes so that you can be with Jesus moment by moment was uh, something I heard even just yesterday. So I was, I was listening to a lecture as I was shoveling out my driveway, and uh, the guy giving the lecture said that because of Jesus coming down to the earth, becoming a man, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for sins, rising again three days later, and then ascending into heaven, he punched a hole through heaven where no earthly creature has gone before. And when he did so, he said, it was like a pinata. Do you guys know what pinatas are? You ever have them at a birthday party? Pinatas, kids, pinatas? Finally, somebody gets a good whack at the pinata, and it bursts and breaks open, and then what falls out? Candy falls out. The goodies come down. What a beautiful picture of when Jesus bursts through the heavenly tabernacle where no one has gone before, enters right into the holy holies of God, and when he does so, the Spirit comes out like candy. The goodies of the whole world start to receive. Oh my, this is good that Jesus has left and poured out his goodies, namely the Spirit, so that you could speak and that you could serve. Next time you're at a birthday party, start worshiping as you see that pinata break, okay? <laughs> Start thinking through the hole that's broken through for us to have access to be united with Christ in the heavenly realms and all that that means for us. That's what this passage in 1 Peter 4 means for us. In fact, 1 Peter 3, right before that, tells you Jesus brought, brings us to God through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So that's a key text that I think summarizes it. God gives you the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What should you do with them? Speak the word of God, because they're speaking gifts. And what else should you do? You should serve. Serve with the strength God supplies. Another text to just reiterate the point that if you want to summarize the Christian life, there's two simple things you could think of. Word and deed, speak and serve. Colossians 3.17, have you heard this one? Whatever you do, 
whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That sums it up, doesn't it? Everything that you will do today and tomorrow and the rest of this week and the rest of this year could be summarized in either word or deed. The things you say or the things you do. So Colossians is saying that whatever you do, whether it's the word thing or the deed thing, whether it's with your hands or with your lips, do it to the name and the glory of Jesus. And we could go on, but hopefully you're seeing that this is throughout the Bible. The life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, was summarized here in Matthew 4, in Mark chapter 3, throughout the Bible as he spoke God's word, he served God's world. So if we want to do what Jesus did, what what, what does that mean for us? Speak and serve. Word and deed. We do not need to isolate the others. They don't need to be in conflict with each other. We don't want to be a church that's just about preaching and teaching and evangelism with the exclusion of service and love and care for the poor and help for those who are downtrodden and shoveling out older folks' driveways this weekend because, hey, they can't do it, etc., etc., loving your neighbor. We, we can marry these things beautifully because that is what it means to follow Jesus. So let's walk through this then. Look at your handout and you're going to notice that I have 10 things listed about speaking God's word and serving God's world. Let's take them one at a time. This is like an overview of what I believe is our covenant as a church, by the way. If you were to summarize what we have covenanted together as a church, for those of you who are members of this church, it is to speak and serve like Jesus. So first, Jesus spoke God's word by preaching. He spoke God's word by preaching. That's quite plain in our text here too, isn't it? And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming. It's a synonym for the word preaching. But we should ask the the question here in verse 23 of chapter 4 in Matthew. What did Jesus preach? Do you see this in verse 23? What's the message that we should be like Jesus and proclaim? And what is it? It says, the gospel of the kingdom. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at that phrase because... It's very similar to what you see in verse 17. Look your eyes up to verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is the gospel of the kingdom? And I think before you even answer that question, you need to ask another question. What's the gospel? What does that word gospel mean? Do you you know what it means? Can you answer that? If you don't, then this is very helpful instruction for you because this is central to what it means to follow Jesus, to know the gospel, to receive the gospel. But then also, if you're going to be like Jesus, and this is the summary word that is used throughout the Bible, not just in Jesus, in his day, but it's the summary word used throughout the rest of the New Testament, the gospel. What does that word mean? How are you going to speak God's word if you don't even know the key word that summarizes the whole story of the Bible? What's the gospel? Answer, the word gospel literally means good news. Okay, when we look at this word, we should have two key ideas in our minds of what they are inserting in, how they're using this word. Two two ideas. First is, of course, the Old Testament. Because if you've been at this church, you'll notice that the story does not start in Matthew. It starts in Genesis. And so there's a story going on in the Bible. It's a story about a kingdom. And we know that in Isaiah 52, verse 7, there's this beautiful poem about beautiful feet. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's the word gospel. 
So before Jesus gets on the scene, there's already a Jewish teaching about beautiful feet that bring a message of good news. And the message is summarized this way in Isaiah 52, verse 7. Your God reigns. A messenger is going to come. And he's going to proclaim and he's going to announce good news that God is reigning and ruling. He's the king. He's the one true king. And all the other kings are just like little puppets in this king's hand. Here's another key passage. Isaiah 61.1. This is the one that was read earlier in the, the, the service today. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. Do you remember hearing that earlier? The spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. There's going to be a day when the spirit comes upon someone and they're going to announce good news to the poor. Jesus picks that passage up in Luke chapter 4. He reads that passage in a synagogue and he says, this passage is coming true right now as I pronounce good news to you all. Jesus is the one who embodies the spirit of the Lord in its fullness, and he's the one who announces good news to the poor. So that's, that's one key idea that you must know in terms of gospel. What's the background behind this word gospel? It's the good news that God reigns through the spirit-empowered words of someone who's announcing good news to the poor. That's, that's the Isaiah background. Second background that you should know, gospel is not a religious word. Gospel is a political word that was used every time a new Caesar would come into power. So remember, Jesus is living during the time of which empire? Anybody? What? The Roman Empire, okay? So imagine, we're 2,000 years ago, and we're in the Middle East, and the Roman Empire is in charge of everything, and everybody is paying tribute to who? Caesar the one ruler, the one king. Throughout the reign of the different Caesars, when a new one was coming into power, they would send out messengers throughout all the towns and villages of the Roman Empire. And so I want you to imagine this for a moment. I want you to imagine somebody coming into town. You don't have internet. You don't have news. You don't have publications written. You don't have smartphones, etc. You have verbal announcements to hear your news. And here comes a messenger, some official governing employee of the Roman government, and they come and they say, hear ye, hear ye, everyone. I'm coming to bring a gospel. That's the word they'd use. I'm coming to announce good news. And what would they say? A king, a new king, Caesar Augustus, or Nero, or Tiberius, whoever it was. They would say, they are now on the throne. You are to honor him. This is good news because he is going to take us to new heights and his kingdom will never end and it will expand and it will be strong and powerful. Aren't you excited to celebrate the good news of the Caesar? Do you see how like politically subversive it is? How undermining it is for Christians in the first century to say Jesus pronounced a gospel that God reigns. A gospel of, of what? A kingdom. So to speak the message of Jesus is to announce the reign and rule of God through the ministry of Jesus. So I think the best way to, to capture this is to really kind of put yourself in, in a story type illustration. So I've done this number of times with people in evangelism or in different talks when people say, oh, will you come preach for an event and they don't have any idea? I just preach this. 
And this is the short summarized version. This is what I said. What, what's a gospel? A gospel is an announcement of some sort of great military victory or a new king in power. So imagine you're living in a small village like Nazareth. Small little village. And, and the men and the young boys, 18 years old and up, are all fighting in a war. And imagine yourself being a mother or a child. Dad and my older brothers and my, my uncle, maybe even my grandfather, they're all fighting. They're fighting at war. And you're back home, away from the war and the battle, and you're just waiting for news. You have no idea what's going on. You have no instant updates, probably praying, probably anxious, probably worried. Because you know that when that messenger comes, there's two possible answers. He either comes with a gospel and says, good news, I've got good news, we won, we won the battle. Or he comes back and says, run, fight, take up arms, they're coming to invade us, they, they defeated our army and they're coming for you, you're going to be a slave. Or get killed even worse. Put yourself in that situation. What would you do if you hear somebody says, good news, I have a gospel to bring. The messenger is running, he's out of breath. <gasps> Guys, I got a gospel. We won. What would you do? What would your response be? Would any of you hear that and say, oh, I wasn't that interested in my husband's fate or the fate of this whole community. I can just take it or leave it. Oh, that's good for you guys, that's good. Do you see how relevant this message is? If that's true, I can do what? Celebrate, yay, good news. If it's not true, if they did lose and they don't have a gospel, what, what do you need to do? Work and fight and do whatever you can to just keep yourself alive. So question to you, my friend, how many of you are living like celebration or like the gospel's not true and you're fighting and doing everything to grab and claw and, and pull up your sword and get yourself ready because there's a battle coming and I got to earn my way. How many of you, that that's how you're living? You're essentially living as if the gospel is not true. The messenger came in and has announced good news. It's done. The victory has been won. The battle is over. Satan has been defeated. Sin is destroyed. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe it? You will know how you believe it by the way you live, not just by you saying, yes, I believe it. You will live with freedom, with joy, with celebration. We don't just sing these songs to fake and muster up emotions of like, yes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We sing like that because we know that he has won. And we're celebrating the victory until he comes back and ushers in the full and final kingdom on his return. So then this is our message. Our message is to finally, is, is to proclaim a few simple things. If you want to be speaking God's word, you need to announce the good news. Your message that comes out of your mouth should not be downing and depressing. It should be leading somebody to joy and celebration that they'd want to throw off all their sins and their former ways of living, that they'd want to follow Jesus. Because this is good. 
So you need to talk about Jesus and what he did to achieve victory through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Just talk about Jesus and you're probably speaking God's word as if you're talking about those things that he has done. That's speaking God's word through preaching to all the nations. Secondly, speak God's word by praying. Speak God's word to God even by praying. The basis of all of our praying is really around God's word. And there's so much we could say about that, but I want to give you this short, simple definition from a book I read this last year about calling on the name of the Lord, and it says this. Prayer, by definition, is calling on God to come through on his promises. That's what prayer is. When you look through the Bible, the petitions of prayer in particular is what this is referring to. If you're asking God for something, When you look at the way people prayed throughout the Bible, they would remind God of the promises he made in accordance with the will and the plan that he's already established. Have you heard the phrases, anything you pray according to my will, I will give you? That's because you're praying according to the promises of God. So in order for us to speak to God in prayer, we should speak back to God his word. Say, God, you said this. You promised this. So I now, on the basis of that promise, am asking for this. Do you see how that centers your prayers around God's will and not your will? How many of us were praying, my kingdom come and my will be done on earth? That's that's the main substance of our prayers. We will be more instructed in our praying if we learn to pray the way the Bible teaches us to pray, not only by calling for God to come through on his promises, but by praying the actual prayers of the Bible. One time, uh, a few years ago, I did a study to just simply ask, you know, people, every time we gather as Christians and we start praying, it seems like we pray about the weather and we pray about people's illnesses and sicknesses and all kinds of variety of things. And I've never thought that that's a bad thing to pray about, but I'm like, are we kind of overdoing it as Christians? So I wondered, if I take all the prayers of just the New Testament and put them on a document and line them up, I'd say, which fall into the, like, take care of my health category? I found, like, one or two. But there are literally dozens upon dozens of prayers that sound like this. I pray that your heart will know the height, the width, the breadth, and the depth of the love of God. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I pray that the gospel would embolden you so that you would preach with boldness, that the word of God would go ahead of you. I pray, I pray, I pray. I pray that God would send forth laborers into the harvest field. You just start adding them up and you're like, whoa, they are praying in the New Testament about a bunch of kingdom-centered things as if the kingdom has come rather than my little kingdom. And we as a church, if we want to be speaking God's word through prayer, we need to speak to God his word back to him. And make God's word the basis of our praying. Number three, speak God's word by confessing our sins. A few weeks ago, we looked at Matthew chapter 3, verse 6. So if you glance your eyes over, you'll see that John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus. And in verse 6, it says they were baptized by confessing their sins. And so a few weeks ago, we, we talked about the importance of confessing sin. But if I were to sum it up with one short little phrase for us. Realize this, sin leaves the body out of the mouth. Sin will leave your body through your confession out of your mouth. And one of the reasons we have church in community and not in isolation as individuals is because if you want to really fight against the temptations and the struggles in your heart, 
you, you need to share those with people. People that you trust and love. I'm not saying we just get up and share every deepest, darkest secret with a random stranger. I'm saying this is what church is about. That's what the covenant's about. That's what it means to lock arms with people and love and know them. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you would get healed. We saw in our text in Matthew 4 a lot of healing going on, right? There's two kinds of healings. There's physical healing and then there's like this spiritual healing sometimes leads to our physical ailments, by the way, that if we were to not be so anxious, maybe we wouldn't have so many issues going on, as an example. Anxiety oftentimes has led. Ask medical professionals all the time. Well, actually, your problem is you're anxious. You have anxiety problems, and that's what's wrong with your stomach or this or that. Healing comes through confession as we speak the gospel of good news to people who are living as if the gospel wasn't true. And then the fourth and fifth thing you see really relate to one another. Joyful celebration and helping those who suffer through our counseling, our giving them words of encouragement. You know, think of the phrase in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is why we have things like we do downstairs before services on a weekly basis where we have people share announcements and updates of what's going on in their life so that you can weep with those who weep and you can rejoice with those who rejoice and you can go up to this person and not just in your heart but say, praise God, that's encouraging. I'm so excited for your new baby, for your new job. I'm so excited for what God's doing in your life. What an amazing thing God has provided for you. Can you do that or do you have too much jealousy and enviousness and selfishness in your heart that you can't speak to someone and say, I'm really glad for what God's doing in your life. That's a helpful discipline. Furthermore, when people come and, and on a regular basis share their, their hurts and their pains and their struggles, how, how comforting for those of you who have been suffering and hurting is it to have somebody say, I am praying for you, and you get the sense that they really mean it. Like not just a Christian lingo thing, but like remind you later in the week, hey, I just prayed for you right now. I care about you, and I'm praying for you through this tough, difficult time. Can I bring you a meal because this is really hard. Just don't even think about going to the store. Can I help with your laundry? These are the sort of normal things that this church for the last four years has done by God's grace through the strength God has provided when people have suffered. And so as a church, we should be committed to serving and speaking words of life and hope when those good, joyful things to celebrate and then the difficult, suffering days of sorrow. But one of the things I want to make clear, especially at that last point, look, speak God's word to the suffering by counseling, which is there are times where we're going through hard times and we need to be reminded of the good news. We need to be reminded that God loves us, that these bad things are not going on because God's angry with us. Uh, we, we need to be reminded of true things. We need good counsel. We need other people to sit around and say, listen, this is my kind of thoughts according to the Bible based on what you're going through. That's so helpful. But do you know what's even more helpful when you're going through a difficult time? Serving point number one. We serve God's world by listening. You know one of the best things to do when people are hurting and struggling, and just in general, is to just shut your mouth and listen? Did you know that? Like it's really, really useful for us to be quick to listen. Be slow to speak and slow to anger. That's James 1.19. One of the best ways that all of us right here could take something very simple away 
is to say this year in 2018, in my discipleship to Jesus, to serve other people, to bring healing and hope and love into their life is to be a better listener. If you've not made a New Year's resolution, maybe do that one. One of the things that I read last year was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together with a couple of the guys in the church. And, and this quote's too good to not share with you. And this is actually what sparked this idea is that if we're going to really serve and love each other, I think one of the things we need to be committed to is not caring about ourselves so much, not thinking about what we're going to say next, but just listening and really wanting to know how someone's doing. What if, what if this church grew in our culture of asking, how are you doing? And then when somebody said, fine, you said, no, really, how are you doing? I want to know. What if that became normal? Normal lingo, normal servant-hearted, I care about you. I'm going to just put my agenda off to the side. I'm going to turn my phone off. If it goes off, whatever, I'm here with you. L listen to these words by Bonhoeffer. The first service that one owes others in the fellowship of believers consists in listening to them. Just as love to God begins by listening to God's word, so the beginning of love for our brothers is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but he lends us his ear. So it is his work that we do for our brothers when we learn to listen to them. Christians, especially pastors, so often think they must always contribute something when they're in the company of others that then this is a service that they have to render. Guilty as charged. We forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. But too, on, too often they do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking when they should be listening. Anyone who thinks that his time is too valuable to spend time to quietly listen to their brother, but only listen to themselves, will be pursuing him and his own follies, a self-centered kind of person. This is very instructing, by the way, in this next part. Bonhoeffer says, there is a kind of listening that is half an ear open, presuming you already know what the other person has to say. But it is an attentive ear that does not despise a brother or a sister and just waiting for your chance to speak and so that they could be finished so you could say what you wanted to say. This, this does not fulfill our obligation to our brothers and sisters. It is certain that here, too, our attitude forward for our brother only reflects our relationship with God. It is little wonder that so many of us are no longer capable of listening to God because we have not committed to listen to one another. Christians have forgotten the ministry of listening. It's been committed to us by God himself and a great listener. And those that pursue this should share in the gift of God listening to us because once we do listen, then we'll have all the more opportunity to speak God's word to each other. There's so much there, isn't there? How often are we half-heartedly scrolling our phones as we try and listen to our spouses or our friends or watch television? Oh yeah, I got you. I heard, I heard that. Guilty as charged, okay? Let's serve one another by not just constantly giving counsel. How many of you feel like, you know, I just don't feel qualified 
to counsel somebody and help them in their problems. It's so messy and so difficult. Do you realize that every single one of you could commit right now to say, you know, I could listen and I could pray. I could listen to what this person's going through, be really genuinely interested, ask questions to just better understand what they're going through and say, I don't know what to say, but can we just pray for this? I guarantee if you were to do that and that be your only ministry, you'd probably be one of the favorite people in this church. Guarantee it. Number two, serve by giving. Giving with our lives, our finances, our time, our energy, our resources, with the strength that God provides, with the resources God provides. We say this every week, that the Bible commands that we should give what you have decided in your heart. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 9. Each one must give as you decide in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. The basis of our giving is this. For we know that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was rich, but he became poor for our sake so that we could become rich. Through his poverty, through Jesus giving up everything and owning all, he humbled himself and lost it all. Ultimately to the point of death on a cross. The gospel is the basis. As we, as we preach the gospel to each other, it should, it should have impacts and effect and influence the way we give our time, our money, and our energy. We'd want to just serve ourselves because look how well God has served us in Christ. Number three, we should serve by committing by like saying, yes, I'm going to commit to a church or a ministry. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to help this person. I'm going to disciple this person. I'm going to make a commitment. I'm, I'm not going to be wishy-washy. A few years ago when I was in Washington, D.C., before I moved out here to start Embassy, one of the best talks I heard while being a, a member at my church there was this short Sunday evening address. And I want to just summarize some of the key points. But the talk was called the God of Open Options, little g, like a false idol, a God that we worship here in the 21st century. We want to keep our options open. He says, do you prefer to make an ironclad, no turning back choice, or do you prefer to make ones where you could back out if needed? Do you ever find that you're afraid to make commitments? Do you reply to party invitations with maybe instead of just saying yes or no? Do you like to keep your smartphone switched on at all times, even in a meeting, so that you're never fully present at any given moment? Will you focus on the person you're talking to after the church service, or do you look over the shoulder so that you could find maybe a better conversation partner? If so, you might be worshiping the God of open options. Is this you? Does that ever describe you, that you want to keep your options open because your culture that you world in always demands something else, more options? And, and we think, we're under the illusion, we've been deceived to think, the more options we have, the more freedom we have to choose. And he says, no, 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 this is not good. A limitless choices actually does not make us happy. There have been several studies on this, even from psychological perspectives of non-Christians. The number of choices available actually makes you all the more overwhelmed Difficult to ever fully commit and enjoy what you have. Is this us? I think it's the world we live in. One of the examples he gave in the talk that I could not necessarily relate with but could understand, he says, take for example being at Starbucks. He said, I was at Starbucks one time and somebody ordered a double shot, half decaf, 170 degree vanilla chai latte. And for the moment, he thought, man, look at all of those options. I was just going to get a tall coffee. 
And he started thinking, should I want my coffee 170 degrees with double shot of espresso inside of my chai latte? Oh, with soy milk? Like, we think that that's freedom. That's, that's the height of pleasure and enjoyment. And he makes quite plain that all of these options that we have, whether they're at Starbucks or even the bigger questions of where you're going to go work, where you're going to go to school, where you should live, who should I get married to, where should I worship in my church, oftentimes we never commit because we're afraid to choose, and we then become slaves of our non-committal state. We worship the God of open options, and he's killing your joy. He's killing your relationships. You think, well, I better not get too involved, because then that would take me away from other options later in the week. Keep my weekends open, rather than say, no, I'll just sign up and do that particular thing. This, my friend, kills our joy in Christ, because we're constantly being told that there's something better than what we have already offered us in the gospel. You can't serve two masters. Choose. Whom will you serve? Whom will your God be? And so I think we need to think through this. And so as a church, we have a church covenant to help make it very plain that, listen, you do not have to follow Jesus at this church. You can do that at another church, but you've got to do it somewhere. And we just want to continually and gently push, commit, sign your name, get in, and become a part of a church where they can help you do all of these things and much, much more. Number four, we want to serve by inviting. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And at the bottom of your sheet, you'll see, how do we make disciples? And I want to just give you these key words here as we move forward into the coming years. I want you to realize that I think one of the best, easiest ways for us to invite people to follow Jesus is to invest in their lives. And then as we do so, invite them to follow Christ. So sometimes it's by you sharing the gospel, sometimes it's by you inviting them to church, or you inviting them to a Bible study, or you inviting them to an event or something where they could be exposed to Jesus. Sometimes it's you just saying, I want to invite you to follow Jesus with me. So investing in relationships to invite them to follow Christ. The second thing you see there is trellis and vine. As a church, we don't primarily want to be all about organizational structures. Trellis, by the way, is like the wooden lattice that supports let's say a vineyard or fruits or, or flowers. If you've ever been in a garden, you've probably seen some sort of like wooden lattice structure and then there's like vine growing all over it. So get that picture in your mind. That's what I mean by trellis and vine. So the trellis, does it have any life in it in and of itself? And the answer is no. It's an inanimate object. It's, it's got no life. It supports though the life that's growing from those fruits or those you know, flowers that are, are, are rolling up the, tr- the trellis. If your trellis is too small, then there's no room for the vine to grow further. So you need the appropriate amount of trellis versus vine, okay? So here's a, a, a quick critique of what I feel like most pastors and churches do. They build up their organizational structures, the programs that are to serve the people, but they don't actually serve people through their programs. And so often what happens is churches are not people-oriented first, like growing the vine. They're program-oriented. And so pastors fill their days just doing admin work nonstop. Now, some of you have never been pastors, so you have no idea what I'm talking about. But just generally speaking, this is the way churches go about their life. 
My hope when we started this church four years ago is that we'd be a people-oriented church that had just enough trellis, just enough organizational structures for the, the vine to grow, and if we outgrow them, then we need to reevaluate and maybe build up the trellis more, but that the focus will always be on watering and nourishing the actual people that are in those structures, not just saying, well, we've, we've got to do this program because that's just what churches do, and if we want to be faithful, we've got to do X, Y, Z, whatever you want to fill in the blank with, whether it's homeless ministries or whether it's you know, crisis pregnancy stuff, or whether it's children's ministries on Wednesday evening programming, on and on we could go. There's a lot of things this church currently is not doing trellis-wise programmatically. The question is, how well is the vine growing? And so as we invite people into this church, I want us to make sure that we have a balance between people and programs, and not overemphasize the programs, and make sure that we're caring for our people with good programmatic approaches. So you'll be hearing, as you have starting last week, we want to start a new program called Around the Table to create just a little bit more trellis that we haven't had before for you all to meet together around tables in homes and have meals together. We're hoping to put a little bit of admin work to extend what we're currently doing and then hopefully be able to have more deeper, meaningful relationships for people to speak God's word, serve each other in the church. That's an example of what I mean by trellis around the table. It takes work to organize who's where and who's going to eat here and who's going to be at the meals. So we're going to try and put that together. And there's going to be volunteers that are giving themselves to admin work. And praise God for that, right? That's necessary. The hope, though, is that people get together around tables and love each other like we've been talking about. And on and on we will hopefully go in the years to come where we give ourselves to inviting people to our homes, being hospitable, inviting them into our church, inviting them to the different programs and activities we do. I'm hoping in the next year or so, we start developing more programmatic activities that if you want to like learn about why we believe the Bible, that we can have like a lecture or a talk and you can invite your friends and say, hey, we're gonna have like a little evangelistic talk and I can invite my friends to hear about Jesus and why we believe the Bible or why this issue versus that and that help serve us. Lastly, number five, we want to serve God's world by going to the nations. That's what's referenced there, by going. And this means that you would serve those by not only financially giving that we saw in our second point, but by actually you yourself going. Short-term trips, you, many of you could start planning and making plans to do short-term mission trips. Like I was able to go to Dubai recently. Uh, I hope there'd be more trips that people can go on, not just ones that I do, but others. I've talked with a few members that say, yeah, I'd like to do short-term trips. Be more than willing to help you with that. Another thing is long-term missions. This week when I was in Kansas City, I was talking to a pastor of a church in uh, Minnesota, and he said that when they do membership interviews, they put a passport in every membership packet. So imagine coming to a new church and say, welcome. I'm going to teach you what it means to join this church. And in it, you're thumbing through, and it's like, oh, here's what we believe about the Bible, and here's this. And then eventually you're like, oh, a passport what's this for what's this passport thing about and he says well this church believes that in order for the good news of the gospel to spread people need to go and if we don't talk about it and we don't talk seriously about it then people aren't going to go they're going to just get comfortable with their lives so we want you to know that right now as you're joining our church we're praying that you would leave this church and go to the nations and we're hoping that you would take that application for your passport and cash it in and go to the nations. I don't know. 
just heard it last week. Sounds like a good idea, right? But seriously, though, let's think about the Great Commission that we've been given and put it into practice. So in closing, one final thought for us all. This was a lot. This was a big overview, right? And there's maybe temptation right now as we're closing to be like, yeah, I'm going to do all of those. Now, that's going to be really impossible for us to try and figure out. We do this, number one, collectively as a church. You have certain gifts, someone else has certain gifts, and when we bring them all together, we then can be the body of Christ. And so maybe you're better at speaking, maybe you're better at listening. But all of us should be growing in all of them, and so we can sharpen each other. So first, don't feel like this list is all for you individually. It is to a degree, but it's for us collectively because we're all one body in Christ. Second thing is look at this list right now. Out of these 10 things that I mentioned, what's one area that you know you're weak in? Can you think of one area that you know that I need to work on this because I want to be more like Jesus? If you identify that, can you think of someone even in this church now that's good at that, that you could learn from? That would be ideal if you started working with them about how to study my Bible better so I could preach or how to pray. Wow, they seem like when they get up and pray, like they've been with God, not just here in front of people in public, but in private. I also want to encourage you all to think that it is a long-term commitment to follow Jesus, and it is not a one-time, like, snap your fingers, and these ten things are going to start falling down like goodies from the pinata, and boom, here they are, they just happen. Oh, the Holy Spirit falls down like goodies from a pinata, but it happens slowly and daily and moment by moment, and so the best thing for us to do is to collectively realize that all of us have strengths and weaknesses. We have different gifts. When we pull them together, we become much more beautiful and much more effective in the world. But furthermore, you individually will grow when you realize this is a long-term deal. And so right now, just think of one area that like, you know, I really do need to improve my prayer life. I don't do it quite as often as I should. I don't think I knew anything what Phil was talking about in terms of praying God's promises back to him. I never do that. Well, that'd be a great thing to work on. Just, just focus on one thing for the next six months. One simple thing that you could say, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be with him. I want to be more like him. And let's do that collectively in community. That would be my challenge to us as we move on to 2018. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks for your word that you have made it clear to us that there is good news for each one of us who are here. Thank you, God, for the good news that Jesus Christ has conquered and he has won the battle and the victory is ours and that he is reigning and ruling. What good news. I pray, God, that as we stand and sing these next two songs that we would have joy in our hearts, that there would be a voice of celebration, not of somber and sadness, like, oh, no, what a failure I am. I get reminded yet again what a terrible Christian I am. What's one more thing I need to do? I need to diet better. I need to exercise better. Oh, I need to be a better Christian God, I pray we wouldn't think that way, that we would feel the, the, the freedom and the joy of you breaking us free from our sins and the gospel, that that freedom and joy of having all our sins paid for on the cross and victory over sin, Satan, and death would empower us and encourage us and give us the life that we need in order to move forward into these next days and weeks and years to come. So give us the Holy Spirit. Pour it out like the goodies from the pinata. Help us now, God to let the joy in Christ fuel our speaking and serving. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.